We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our reading is in Second Chronicles chapter 17. If you'd turn your Bibles there, we're going to see a second good king in a row. Not perfect, but a good one. Second Chronicles 17. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, that's Asa, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. And he placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals or Baals but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat and he had riches and honor and abundance. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Also in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders, uh, Ben-Ahel, Ahiel, maybe you could say it, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah to teach in the cities of Judah. Boy, that is right up my alley, friends, for a long time. Earlier we read that Israel had been without a true priest or teaching uh, teaching priests, rather, and a true prophet, and now he's concerned that the people would know the law in the cities of Judah. And with them he sent Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramot, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobah excuse me, Tobadonijah, the Levites, and with them Elishama and Jehoram, the priests. So they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Also, some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver as tribute And the Arabians brought him flock, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful, and he built fortresses and storage cities in Judah. He had much property in the cities of Judah, and the men of war, mighty men of valor, were in Jerusalem. These are their numbers, according to their fathers' houses. Of Judah, the captains of thousands, Adna the captain, and with him 300,000 mighty men of valor. And next to him was Jehohanan, the captain, with him 280,000. And next to him was Amasiah, the son of Zikri, who willingly offered himself to the Lord, and with him 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him was Jehazabad, and with him 180,000 prepared for war, These served the king, besides those the king put in the fortified cities throughout all of Judah. 
Uh, did, did anybody do the math on that to keep track of the total number? That is a huge number of troops, isn't it? Yes, and you might uh, say, well, there, there you go. The peace through strength, you know, they, uh, they had a good army and so thus the nations didn't attack them. But uh, it says the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms, verse 10, uh, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. And why was that? It started with the simple thing called obedience to God, obedience to God. And God had promised in the covenant that, uh, the old covenant, that he would bless obedience and they were doing that at that time. So that's a blessing to hear about that. All right, for the balance of our time tonight, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew 20 in your Bibles, please. Matthew chapter 20, and look at the word of the Lord with me. The end of Matthew 20 now is where we find ourselves. And the Bible says in uh, Matthew 20 that as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they had heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Of course, he already knew. They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Let me just make a quick note there. When they asked their eyes to be opened, I don't believe that that means literally that their eyelids were stuck closed and they had to be opened. I think they mean we want you to restore our sight. And the parallel passages of the same event bear that out. Now, there are problems. I'm going to deal with these problems and get them out of the way first with this passage. What do I mean by problems brought up by the passage? Well, there are two other records of the events, Mark and Luke. In Mark chapter 10, maybe you want to have your finger over there in Mark chapter 10, and maybe I'll just put a little bookmark there in case I want to back, go back and forth. But it's Mark 10, 46, and then there's also Luke 18. I think it will be uh, sufficient uh, for me, one second, yes, to deal with the Mark passage. And you'll see the, the substance of the issues that are brought up here. These are brought up by people who would uh, try to be searching for contradictions in Scripture. And uh, so we'll deal with them forthrightly. There's nothing for us to hide here. Verse 46 of Mark 10, Now they came to Jericho as he went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And then it focuses on him as the one who is healed. Uh, and uh, actually, I do realize now I do have to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, to uh, uh, encounter the second of the two difficulties. Uh, Luke 18, I'm going to read from verse 35. It says, Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging and hearing a multitude passing by. He asked what it meant. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who were, uh, went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought, and when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What would, do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Okay, so Matthew uses synonymous language, that my eyes may be opened. 
uh, to express the same exact truth. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the first question is, were there two men or one man? Matthew says there were two. Uh, Two blind men, verse number uh, 30. And Luke says there's only one. Mark mentions only one and gives his name, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, which is probably the Aramaic for Bar, son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. It's possible to explain this apparent discrepancy as two separate events. You know, one event they saw one blind man, and another event they saw two blind men. Um, But it seems better to understand that Bartimaeus was the more prominent of the two men. He was the chief speaker, if you will. Uh, Did most of the talking, perhaps, at least what we can see from the text. Uh, or, or it's that he became the more well-known follower of Jesus. The text in Matthew records that both men did follow Christ, although, as most often the case in the Gospels, there's no comment here as to how long they continued to follow him. We don't, have, we don't follow the history of them through the Gospels, but we could suppose that they were known to have been followers of the Lord for some time. Um, Now, it must be also emphasized here that we have three eyewitnesses to this account. We actually have a bunch of eyewitnesses, but we have Matthew directly writing. We have Luke, who was probably uh, affiliated with Paul. Uh, Well, he was affiliated with Paul. Then we have Mark, who also could have been affiliated with Paul or someone else. and or observe the events himself. So we know we have at least several perspectives, several angles on this situation. So from, as often the case with uh, truthful eyewitnesses, their stories will vary depending on their vantage point without any of them being wrong uh, or giving, you know, lying about it or whatever. So they uh, gave what they wished to emphasize in their testimony, and Matthew chooses to mention both men here. Now, the other difficulty, you know, we have two men or one. The other difficulty is a different kind of difficulty, and that's the location. Was Jesus leaving Jericho, or was he going into Jericho? Did you notice that? In verse in Matthew, it says, As they went out, a great multitude followed, and they encountered these guys. And in Luke, it says, As they came near to Jericho, there's a certain blind man. So it seems like he's coming in. In Matthew, it seems like he's going out. What do we make of this situation? Um, and, then, and then actually in Luke 2, not Luke 2, Luke 19, Luke also, you have uh, the Bible mentioning that Jesus went in to uh, Jericho. So it's clearly the case that we're dealing in Luke 18 with an entry into that part of the city and in Matthew as they went out. So there are a couple of reasonable solutions for this apparent discrepancy. The first is that they, and I will say it this way, there are a couple of reasonable solutions from a Bible believer's standpoint. Probably the most reasonable from an unbeliever's standpoint would be, well, there's just a contradiction in God's word and uh, fooey on the whole thing. 
but uh, that's not the case. Uh, as you understand, we believe God's word is from God, inspired by God. Listen to a couple of other solutions that are just as uh, sensible. The first is that they encountered the blind men both on entering and on leaving. I imagine a situation where the disciples saw and Jesus saw the blind men on the way into the city, and later uh, when they came out, the uh, same men heard again the hubbub, and on the way in, they learned who it was. On the way out, they're like, oh, there he is again. I better you know, speak up or I'm not going to get my healing that I want. Um, and so they were ready to be asked, ready to ask to be healed. You might not find that view convincing. Um, there is another view that has often been taken, and I, I lean toward this one, but it's not that important to me which one somebody uses, or maybe there's other alternatives I haven't thought of. The second approach to, to deal with this apparent discrepancy is that there were actually two pieces or sections of Jericho. There was the original mound of the ancient city that had been destroyed during Joshua's time. Remember Jericho being destroyed? Uh, and there was a mound of that city there. And then it was rebuilt. Now, you might find that strange at first if you know your Old Testament quite well. Uh, in some ways, you, you remember the Jericho destruction and what God did to promise that somebody they tried to rebuild it, what would happen to them. But so it was rebuilt. And then, I'll look at that in a moment. And then there was New Jericho, where there was a, a live city with residents. And in my study, I noted the timeline does support the existence of a second Jericho or a second part of that city. So we know that Jericho was destroyed by Joshua. Do you remember about what year that could have occurred? No, Okay. Um, one key date for you to remember that's very helpful is the date of the Exodus around 1440 B.C. Just, you got to memorize it, okay? There's no way around it. You just have to know it, 1440 B.C. Well, by the end of their wilderness wanderings, that's when they come in and destroy the city of Jericho, right? Well, that was around 40 years later, so we're talking around 1400 B.C., 1440, 40 years after that. The numbers get smaller when you're in B.C., so you're at 1400, okay, roughly. Then there's another uh, mention of Jericho, and it's found in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 10. All we're trying to do here is establish that there are two exact, you know, GPS locations that can be called Jericho, okay? That's all. It's a very simple goal here, but we're, we're having to jump to a couple scriptures. In 2 Samuel 10, 5, um, the uh, King Hanan um, said that, you know, David was sending comforters to you, but no, they're not comforters. They're actually spies, and so Hanan treated them very shamefully. Remember that? He shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle. What an embarrassment. And sent them away. Terrible. <clears throat> now, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. 
And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Wait at Jericho. Well, how could they wait at Jericho if Jericho was destroyed? Well, obviously there was some kind of Jericho there. Um, David reigned from 1010 BC to 970. So 1400 BC, 1010 BC, almost 400 years later, uh, David is telling them to Go to the city called Jericho. It's on the border, you know, obviously on the border just into Israel from the Jordan River. And um, <clears throat> it appears that they were in this place for some time until their beards grew back and they get a proper change of clothes after that uh, shameful treatment, uh, really humiliating treatment. And as representatives of the nation of Israel, they were humiliated. The nation was treated in a humiliating fashion by this fellow didn't go well uh, after that, but anyway, for him. So I will say uh, then third, so we have Jericho destroyed in 1400 B.C., a new Jericho existing around 1000 B.C., and then in Joshua, or sorry, uh, well, let's go to Joshua before we get to um, 1 Kings. In Joshua chapter 6, it says in verse 26, God prophesied uh, through Joshua that cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And that means that he will lose his children when he does this because he's uh, violating the curse of uh, this place and uh, the the ban, if you will. Now, go to 1 Kings chapter 16. First Kings 16. In 1 Kings 16, it says in verse 34, In his days, now this is in the days of Ahab, I said Rahab, it's Ahab, uh, made a wooden image in verse 33, and he provoked the Lord to uh, anger. But in his days, Hiel of Bethel, and by the way, this is in the northern kingdom, Jericho is, okay? In, the, in his days, Hiel, H-I-E-L, of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Seguv, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, this is history. This just is a, it's, an, it's amazing that we've got this statement in our possession. Uh, you know, as it were, dug up from the sands of time, actually really passed down from generation to generation of the Jewish nation. But uh, Hiel built this. Now, this was during the reign of Ahab in the northern kingdom. And this was between 874 and 853 B.C. So, uh a 20-year time span, over 100 years after David sent these men to Jericho is when this was rebuilt. So how is it that Jericho was destroyed and rebuilt and in between some guys were staying there in Jericho? Uh, well, it had to be that there were two places known as Jericho. Now, they were next door to each other. Okay, There's no, uh, I'm not saying that they were, you know, uh, Chelsea, Michigan, and Chelsea, Alabama, and Chelsea, London, and London. Not that far away, okay? They're they're cities that were really part of one metro area, if you will. 
Um, so it appears there were two neighboring towns, both by the same name. The region was simply known as Jericho, and everyone alive in that place and at that time would understand implicitly what's going on. This is entirely reasonable from my perspective. They would just know, well, that's the old Jericho and that's the new Jericho. We have in Chelsea a road called Old US-12. Well, why is it called Old US-12? Okay, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. The real one, I'll call it, the new one of, of US-12 is farther south. Although I will admit, I don't know the history of the Chelsea version of that, which is, by the way, part of a 2,500-mile-long highway called US-12 Highway. It goes way out to the west. You have old US-23, or it runs right along up there near Brighton for US-23. You have old US Highway 27, which is up, I think, um, south of Mount Pleasant, uh, so even northwest of here. You people with geography will be better on that uh, than I. But usually what happens is you have an old route, and then you know the federal government or somebody comes through and says, well, we're going to blaze a new highway, and this old one's going to become obsolete. It becomes a service drive or something like that. So interesting, I found a couple of examples of places where they, they moved whole towns. So the town of Hibbing, Minnesota, had to be moved because of an iron mine that was causing unstable ground. So the new city, they picked it up and moved it two miles to the south. New and old Hibbing, we could call them, in Minnesota. So we have new and old Jericho. Okay, simple. Um, now, I take both of these discrepancies, two men or one man, uh, into or out of Jericho as apparent discrepancies, which initially appear as uh, difficulties to a careful reader, but which evaporate with faithful, further faithful consideration. We who become followers of God and Christ do not consider the Bible to be a suspect book, which requires us to sit in judgment upon it. Rather, we sit under the judgment of God's word. It's the word of the living God, not of man merely. And the view that I take on this is a carefully thought out position. I'm not merely making a leap of faith into the dark. We find no reason to believe God, sorry, we find no reason to disbelieve God on the things that we can easily grasp and understand, like the gospel, like creation, and similar things because of the clear and multiple witnesses to the truth. I mean, we, we probably you think about this not very often, um, but you know this book is not a is not a single book. This is a book by about forty authors. This is like asking, you know, can you give me some more witnesses than the Bible? Okay, uh, how about the forty that are bound together in one library here. Would that be good enough for you if 40 people were giving you a story that had this kind of consistency, this kind of coherency, and that sort of thing? Uh, yes, just like 500 witnesses viewing the resurrected Christ, knowing that he had been killed by the Romans. Uh, pretty good for me uh, if I'm not to be an unreasonable person. Well, anyway, um, we see we can easily grasp and understand things that are uh, clear, so there's no reason to start distrusting God and things that are a little more murky, and I encourage intellectual humility uh, in this regard. But we see like in the commentaries, people write on these things and criticize the record of the Bible, 
uh, and the, try to find discrepancies and differences and all of that. We don't buy into all of that approach to Scripture. We don't sit in judgment on it. Now, let me talk, too, about the theological importance of blindness. I know I'm not getting to the text itself in, uh, in Matthew. Um, you know, we will in just a moment, Lord willing, but uh, obviously the narrative is very simple to understand. You don't need me to tell you uh, just to reread it to you again. We've got it, okay? The theological importance of blindness in the Bible is what I want to talk about next. Why did Jesus do so many miracles uh, of, of healing and cause blind people to see? Well, for one thing, Matthew 11.5 shows John the Baptist when he asks, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Uh, Matthew 11.5, Jesus answers and says, you go tell him what, what I'm doing. I'm causing the blind to see. Okay, so this is an authentication that Jesus is the coming one, the Messiah or the Christ. And he, he basically is saying, although he doesn't say it in so many words, for the astute Bible student, he's saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5, who will cause the blind to see and the lame to leap and the dumb to speak. He fits that prophecy. Then John 5, 36 explains that these works like healing blind people testify that the Father sent the Son. John the Baptist testified the Father sent the Son. The Son testified of Himself that He was sent by the Father, sent from heaven, came down from heaven. Uh, the, Moses does, the Word of God does, the works testify of the Father sending the Son. So there are many witnesses, as it were, to that as well uh, that verify the testimony of the Son of God, that He's the Messiah and that His work would be ultimately to give His life as a ransom for many. So that's why he did those miracles, to, to authenticate himself and to prove that he was the one sent from God. He didn't just do them for curiosity's sake or you know, to be a, a spectacle or, or to be sensational or to you know, whatever. He did them very humbly, very much under control. But then another question, is there a significance of the Lord's healing of blindness, particularly not just miracles in general, but blindness? I think there is because the problem of, spirit, of physical blindness is a very apt analogy for spiritual blindness. Here are some examples. John 9, 39 to 41. Remember John chapter 9, man born blind, who sinned this man or his parents? Nope, neither of them sinned, but that the glory of God would be revealed in him, the works of God. And after the man was thrown out, the healed man was thrown out of the synagogue and that whole debacle happened, At the end of the chapter, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. Okay, so what, he's, what is he suggesting here? Um, I've come into the world that those who do not see may see. Those people who are blind spiritually, he's come to open their eyes so that they can see the truth. But those who see, and what this means is they think they see, may be made blind. So those religious leaders who are self-righteous, they are going to be confirmed in even more blindness. That's what's going to happen with them. Um, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, 
you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. So there's a real kind of play on words you have to unravel to understand this. But basically it's talking about their spiritual blindness, which is blocking them from dealing with their sin. And so Jesus says their sin remains. You say, we see. We've got it all under control. We know what we're doing. But they don't see the most basic of their sin. John 12, 40 says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. It's a judicial hardening of their hearts. Romans eleven twenty five. some more examples here of the, of the aptness of the analogy of physical blindness to spiritual conditions. Romans eleven twenty five. I do not desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Darkness. Ephesians four seventeen and 18 Uh, You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And then 1 John 2.11, He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has done what? Blinded his eyes. So spiritual blindness, it's the condition of a non-Christian in which they cannot grasp the significance of spiritual truth about God, about Jesus, about sin, salvation, the church, the future, etc. It's a spiritual disability that resides deep in the inner person. And unless God illuminates the spiritual heart of that person, one cannot appreciate the real value, glory, beauty, grace, and so on of the things of God and will not repent and... uh, and come out of the blind condition. But when your eyes are opened, you can't help but believe and repent because you'll see the need for that. So now we come to the text, finally, in Matthew chapter 20, at the end of the chapter. And uh, the blind men used uh, one of their other senses, hearing, to ascertain that Jesus was coming by. Notice how they knew that Jesus was identified as the Son of David. Isn't that interesting? To me, it is anyway. The Pharisees thought Jesus was an illegitimate child. Remember that? Well, we don't know where this guy came from. Really. Evidently, the true lineage of Jesus was more well-known by the populace than we might think from what we read about the Jewish leaders at the time. In fact, when he is about to come into Jerusalem here in a triumphal entry, they said, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew who he was. And if he's the son of David, he likely came out of Bethlehem, yes? Well, in fact, he did. They they ought to have known that. They were hard-hearted and blind to the the history of the things that were going on around them. So they claimed they didn't know where he was from, John 9, 29. Yet years earlier, they knew that the Messiah was to come out of Bethlehem. Remember, Herod said, where's the Messiah to arise? They said, out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, for out of you... Uh, The least of the rulers of Judah shall come forth a king, basically, to rule uh, from from of old. His goings goings forth are from of old. Well, they knew that, but 
sort of. Uh, they didn't equate Jesus with the Messiah because they themselves were in that blind, spiritually blind condition. These men now, knowing that Jesus was the son of David, called out in faith for help. They knew Jesus could heal them because they had heard the news, right? They just didn't know if he would heal them, if he was willing to do that. Mark 10.52 says of Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, that your faith has made you well. Luke 18 says the same, and then it says that he followed Jesus and was glorifying God. Here is a man, I believe, who is truly converted to the Messiah. Now, do you have faith in God like these men to call out to the Lord for help when you need it? Do you have faith in your friends, parents, grandparents? Are you able to call out to them when you need help, when you need help that you're not finding in yourself or others? These men, blind though they were, knew enough to get help from someone outside of themselves. Now, I'm not just talking about going anywhere in a desperate search for help. Um, You see these advertisements now, people, uh, and, and people talk about this. Well, just go to Google and find out. Google, God is not spelled G O O G L E. Why, why we go to Google? Are they trustworthy? Do you, do you re- trust random engineers who are coming up with search algorithms to send you to the right information? Uh, or a random teacher at school? Do you trust your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, your grandmother? Grandma, I have a little problem. Can you help me? I can't talk to my mom and dad about it. It's too, I, can't, I just can't or whatever, you know. I've had my youth experience like that, a a, a trusted person, you know? Like the disciples earlier uh, shooed off the little children brought by their parents, now the crowd tries to shoo off these two nuisance blind men. You're being too loud. Get out of the way. Be quiet. Why should they be quiet? What good reason was that there for them to be quiet? Oh, Jesus is teaching. Don't interrupt him. You know, part of Jesus' teaching in his ministry was this. So you're not asking him to do anything outside of what he was doing and wanted to do by asking him to heal you if you're blind, these, these particular men. Jesus heard their persistent cries for help. Reminds me of Luke 18, men ought always to... Pray and not to faint. They kept asking, and they kept it up. You too. Don't stop asking when people tell you to stop asking God or give up. Jesus then returned a question, asked them what they wanted, although he already knew, of course, because, well, why did he do that? Do you ever, you ever think about that? Why do we have to pray if God already knows what we're going to ask before we ask it? Well, it gave them a chance to express their faith and their request. They did so by asking for their eyes to be opened. And it's like that with our prayers. God knows what we have need of before we ask, Matthew 6, 8. But he delights to hear our expressions of trust, our petitions. 
our dependence, our need, and He gives us an opportunity to voice those to Him. Can you imagine why now He asks us to pray? You know that? You say, well, God already knows. What do I have to do? No, God wants us to communicate to Him. And this is a, this is a relationship we're talking about here. This is not a, um, a formal... Uh, that's kind of formal, but it's not like a, I don't know how to say it. It's not just like you're praying to the sky and the sky answers back. It's you're praying to God, a person. And it's like parents love to hear their children ask and express their trust and dependence on their parents. Um, These men asked, and Jesus was happy to answer. He had compassion. He, what does it say here? He touched their eyes, and they were open. Their blindness was gone, whatever its cause. Uh, You know, congenital. What makes somebody blind congenitally? What what are the explanations? The malformation in the optic nerve or in the brain? or in the, in the structure of the eye, or some damage that occurs early in life, or macular degeneration, glaucoma, cataracts, what else? <laughs> My grandmother used to be a secretary for uh, Dr. Lichter and Dr. Vine up at the Kellogg Eye Center decades ago, and she would talk about different things and tragic situations where people lost their eyes and their eye had to be enucleated, she said. I always remember that word. Uh, very bad situation, but um, blindness. Very difficult to fix. You know, they've come up with uh, things for hearing called cochlear implants, but they're just now in the development stages for an artificial eye to try to, uh, could I say it like this, wire it into the optic nerve so that somebody could see something. It's, it's pretty you know, high-tech stuff, I should say, very high-tech stuff, fascinating things to help people in their struggle with these things. But Jesus simply touched their eyes, and as the God-man, the creator of the universe who formed the body of Adam and took out of it enough to make the body of Eve, he knows all about it. He's the original manufacturer. You go back to the original factory, and uh, he just pulled out a few parts, as it were, and put them in, uh, fixed their eyes somehow. It's a miracle, so there's no real way of explaining it further than that. So the blind, now seeing men, follow Jesus. What do you think they were leaving behind? What kind of life do you think they had? (laughs) They were beggars. They didn't have anything. They were looked down upon. They were probably treated as trash. Well, we see what the crowd did to them. Just be quiet. You know, let Jesus do his important work. Um, they didn't have helps like our blind people have today braille, walking sticks. Maybe they had something. They don't have ADA compliant bathrooms and sidewalks and curb cuts and all that sort of thing stairs, handrails. Being blind was extremely difficult. They left all of that behind. 
and follow Jesus. Sometimes it's easier, I think most of the time, it's probably easier to leave stuff behind and follow Jesus when you don't have a whole lot to leave behind, right? You have a life full of riches and ease and and no problems. Nah, who needs God? But when you have this kind of life, oh, what a deliverance they experienced. So let me ask a couple questions as we close tonight. Has Jesus shown compassion toward you? Do you have faith to be given your sight if you don't have it already? I'll ask those of you online. Do you have faith to be given your sight? Now I speak spiritually, not physically. From what blindness has the Lord delivered you? Do you remember when you were in your state of darkness before you were saved? Or even sometimes after you're born again and you look back in your life and say, boy, I was really blind. I really was kind of clueless. I wasn't processing things right. What kind of blindness has the Lord delivered you from? And then finally, as these men did, do you follow him? Do you follow him? Those are the questions that I came up with as application for our passage tonight. No, God's probably not going to heal your blindness if you have physical blindness today. You'll have to deal with that in the normal way, with the normal means. But I suspect in the kingdom of heaven, when the kingdom comes, your blindness will be healed. If you were alive then and had blindness, of course, if you're a Christian, you'll be resurrected and have a new body. There won't be any blindness in those bodies. But um, how about spiritual blindness? Got to get that fixed. Got to get that fixed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, and I pray that the words that we shared from this miraculous healing have been uh, instructive, have been challenging, have uh, engaged our minds to think in a little different way than we were before we came in. And we thank you. Thank you for today and for your blessing uh, on it, for the provisions you've made in it, just the fact that we have health and life and breath and strength and the ability to be here. Cause enough for thanks, much less all the other things that we could enumerate. Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray that he will be honored, the Spirit will be obeyed, and that you will be glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.